Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. President-elect Donald Trump made immigration a key part of his campaign. Today, where we live, we look at his immigration proposals, which include deporting millions of undocumented immigrants. It's outlined in a plan for his first 100 days in office. Here's what he told 60 Minutes' Leslie Stahl on Sunday. What about the pledge to deport millions and millions of undocumented immigrants? What we are going to do is get the people that are criminal and have criminal records, gang members, drug dealers, we have a lot of these people, probably two million, it could even be three million. We're getting them out of our country or we're going to incarcerate, but we're getting them out of our country, they're here illegally. After the border is secured and after everything gets normalized, we're going to make a determination on the people that you're talking about, who are terrific people, they're terrific people, but we're going to make a determination at that. But before we make that determination, Leslie, it's very important. We want to secure our border. Donald Trump says he'll cancel all of President Obama's executive actions. That means undocumented youth under Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals would no longer be protected from deportation. Mr. Trump also says he will cancel federal funding to sanctuary cities, cities like New Haven, Connecticut. Now, Connecticut under Governor Dana Malloy has been an accepting place for undocumented immigrants. Under Malloy, Connecticut has laws that allow undocumented youth to pay in-state tuition to attend state colleges and universities. And undocumented immigrants can obtain a state driver's license. So what happens now? Coming up, we'll talk with a leader at St. Rose of Lima Church in the Fairhaven neighborhood of New Haven, a place where many immigrants live. We'll also hear from an immigration attorney about what President-elect Trump can realistically do when he's in office. And we'll check in later with the Center for Immigration Studies, which supports measures to not only deport people living in the U.S. illegally, but to limit legal migration, immigration. Now, we'll take your comments and your questions this hour, the number 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we want to talk to the people who may be deported under the next commander-in-chief. On the phone with us are two young women, uh, Joseline, I'll get your name right, Joseline Lacomulco, and she's a UConn student. Did I, would I get close, Joseline? Yeah, that was close. <laughs> Thank you so much. And also Angelica Idrova, who uh, I think works and lives in the Danbury area, and she's part of the Connecticut Students for a Dream. Angelica, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> so I'll start with you, Joseline. Tell me about your family and how old you were when you came to this country. Um, I was eight months when I when I came here. Um, my parents they we we come from Mexico, and uh, my grandfather was here in New Haven at the time, and um, we were receiving we were going through so much um, in Mexico. We were not only living in poverty, but we were receiving such from our own family, um, and so we decided that it was not um, a right place for me to stay in. Um, and I was just a baby. And then my my grandfather uh, had talked to my parents, and my grandfather was just saying, you know, to come here to New Haven instead. And so and so we did. Uh, my mom carried me throughout the whole entire time when we were crossing. 
um, as an eight-month-year-old um, baby. Um, and so he's out here. And, and I've been living in New Haven for 18 years now. So what was your reaction when uh, Donald Trump was elected our next president? Um, I think I was just mad. Um, it really did take an emotional toll out of out of me and my friends. We were watching the election results um, here at UConn. It was an immigrant watch community. Um, and when we just saw the results, we were we couldn't believe it. Um, there was just a lot of anger and tension in the room and disappointment and people were crying. Um, at one point I started, at one point I was crying, but then then I was just mad the whole entire time afterwards. Um, I just, I was just thinking about I call my mom. I was I called my mom. I was I was asking her how she was doing. And she was telling me how like they were upset. My parents were upset. Um, they were questioning like um, if to, if if they should go back to Mexico, and and, and that conversation was going on between them too. Um, and I was just over here um, listening to them, very uh, very upset and just just pissed off. Um, so it we sounds- were going to actually plan to walk out here at UConn at that time. But then we decided to come up with a rally instead mm. on Wednesday at 12, um, just to be more effective and more people would go. Um, but it's, we were really mad. I was really mad. And so, uh, Jocelyn, um, I mentioned um, President Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals um, executive action. Now, that's something that um, you were able to take advantage of? Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, without it, I... I wouldn't have been able to um, work or um, had to have a little bit more privileges than other people, than other folks. I actually worked with Glenn. <laughs> Funny. Uh, he's probably hearing me right now. Um, I worked with him over the summer. and um, Yeah, and I think without it, I, I you know, would have gotten the jobs I received. Now, I know I've seen in social media the hashtag here to stay. Um, We know that uh, other young people who are living here um, without status um, have been very open about their stories. But now under President-elect Trump, do you find that um, many of you are, you know, feeling like you can't be public about your story? Um, Well, not me. (laughs) Not me. Never, Never that. Especially now, I think me personally. Um, I don't want to be in that in the shadows anymore because I think we've been in the shadows for way too long. That at this point we don't we, we really can't because you know, because our parents are relying on us, um, to fight against that and um since we have a they we seem to have a bigger voice than, than um our parents. And so I know my first my parents looking up to me to um and my family and, and friends are looking up to me to uh see what, what I can do in this situation um we'll plan to come up with because at this point to be honest, I just don't know um and we have to be honest with ourselves, but I know a couple of my friends that are um in other like places um across the country are are staying low, even though they're very open about their status too, but they're personally staying low um um, and, I, and I respect that decision because, you know, I can't really force anyone to um, come out and, and and do that because that's really hard. It's really hard to do. Mm. And it's really dangerous as well because you risk your safety. Um, I, you risk your safety. You risk um, 
you know, people knowing that you're undocumented. And at this point, there's a lot of Trump supporters around that you don't even know who to trust. Um, here at UConn, I know, like yesterday, I was walking by, going, uh, walking back to my dorm, and, and I saw this uh, truck, like, full of, um, passing by with, like, a huge Trump support, uh, Trump, Trump flag waving, like, just, you know, proudly. And, you know, it's just, you know, having, knowing that you're not safe here on campus or safe in general is, is really tough. I want to turn now to Angelica Idrova, also on the phone. Uh, she's a Danbury organizer for Connecticut Students for a Dream. Angelica, uh, again, welcome to the show. And what brought, where, are you, where is your family from and what brought them here? Thank you, Luis. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, my name is Angelica Idrova. Um, I came here when I was 12. I was brought with my I, all my family came together, my two younger brothers and my mom and my dad. Um, we arrived at uh, Denbury. We have been in Denbury eight years um, since we came. Um, we, My mom had always a dream to come here to give us a better life, a better economic status, better opportunities, everything that my parents could, couldn't have, uh, they wanted us to have. So that's that's why we came, and also because uh, my mom wanted us, me and my brothers, to be uh, far away from the gangs, that uh, the violence of my country. Uh, I'm from Ecuador. And Angelica, and I'll, I'll ask uh, Joseline to also chime in on this question. You know, we've talked about. Um um, immigration on this show for many years. It's talked about often throughout different presidential campaigns, the need for immigration reform. Um, you know, on the flip side, people wonder, why can't your family come here legally? Can you explain that to them? I will just mention that um, the system uh, doesn't allow us to become legally. There is no way for us to to come legally, many of us uh, come walking through the border, or many of us um, have, have like tourist visas, and we stay over um, the amount of time that um, they allow us. But there is no way for us to just come legally. And and Jocelyn, could you answer that question too? Yeah. Um. So that requires. That's uh, always a question being asked all the time, and it's really annoying. Um, but it's. Uh, you know, that's what you know people are not educated on it. Um, so it's it's just, one, it's just, like, yeah, it's basically you can't because it requires you to to have a lot of money to even apply for a visa. And and at, at that point, obviously, like, if you're living in, like, really rural areas or very, like, poor low-income areas, like, right, you know, live from my parents lived in, like, you're, that's just not impossible. That's just not possible. Um, two, like, you have, or you could, um, you have to have a certified, um, or you have to be like really educated. You have to play, have graduated like college, or have a really good good job, a job that, um, you know, if you have a job offer here in the U.S., like they would really really need you, and they need to prove that they really need you, um, et cetera, et cetera, and stuff like that. And um, um, that's one too. And it's just, you know, it's, just, it's really hard. And I don't, I don't think people really understand that it's not that easy it seems i don't think you know we don't like to be here like without documents you just you know 11.2 slash 0.4 million documented immigrants like to be here just because we want to you know it's just literally the pathway for us to 
become a citizen isn't even there. Um, and if it was, it would have been, you know, all of us would have applied for it way ahead. But now it's just, you know, I think it's even more impossible for to do that. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the phone with me are two young women, uh, two women who are living in Connecticut, uh, undocumented, uh, not here uh, legally. And we're talking about this today because of uh, plans under President-elect Trump uh, to, to, to deport undocumented immigrants. Now, I wanted to ask both of you before we go to break, um, you know, we heard from President-elect Trump, um, one of the first interviews he's done since being elected on 60 Minutes Sunday. It, it seems instead of um, oftentimes during the campaign trail, he was talking about deporting all immigrants who are here um, without status. And now it's it appears he's kind of dialed that back. He wants to focus, as he says, on the two to three million undocumented immigrants who have committed crimes in this country. Um, you know, how do you feel about that? Do you feel that you will be able um, to stay in this country if you do not have a criminal record? I'll start with you, Jocelyn. Um, well, first of all, I think we have to realize that I think Obama has deported the most um, undocumented immigrants during his presidency here. That's why we call him the deporter-in-chief. And many people seem to not realize that. I think um, ever since Obama passed the DACA executive order, they seem to have praised his work in, in immigration. But but to be honest, I think President uh, Obama has supported more than you know Donald Trump has said to said to deport. Um, I know that I know, thankfully, like I won't, I wouldn't be on that track. But I think this whole notion of of um, Sell-ins over families is very um, arbitrary, and it's and I know and I know of people that own family members have been separated and deported, and, and not just because of the criminal record, but because literally they, they haven't been pulled over because they don't have driver's license, or um, many cases um, people get pulled over and by really like. Um, in different states where where cops are required to act as ICE agents, um, and then you know get a ticket and then fall under the system, and then ICE you know tells them tells the police department to hey um, can you hold that person, and then that person then goes into deportation procedures. So I think it's like it's it's not really really true when when um, when even when Obama said um, let's just, we're only deporting criminals because I think that's that's a really big lie because a lot of the people that we know of that have been deported are not criminals, but they fall they fall under the category um, due to um, many many arbitrary um, um, rules and laws. And Angelica, but, you're you're in the Danbury area. What what do you see your future in this country? Um, yeah, but, um, so. I I share the same thoughts as Jocelyn. Um, I'm not in the path because, like, uh, as Jocelyn uh, commented, um, me or my family have not committed anything. Uh, but uh, it's not realistic or it's not true what um uh, what Trump is saying because uh, just thinking about uh, three or four million of, of criminals. Um, it's not true, and I really share the same thoughts with Jocelyn. Many of us, um, they just get a ticket or they just get um, um, 
something that uh, that the police or the ICE agents tell them that they need to be held up and they will need to be uh, on the procedures uh, for deportation. But uh, how I see my future on this country is that I'm here to stay. Um, I consider the United States my second home, and I know that uh, this is a tough time for us, for not only for the undocumented communities, but for the communities of color who have been targeted on, uh, on um, with Trump, with Trump uh, comments. And uh, I know we're stronger. I know that uh, we will fight back, and we will not go anywhere. So I'm here to stay, and I know my community is also here to stay. Well, I want to thank you, Angelica Indrova, undocumented immigrant who works and serves uh, as a Danbury organizer for Connecticut Students for a Dream, and she works on the national level with United We Dream. Thank you for speaking with us, Angelica. Thank you, Liz. Also, Jocelyn Lacomuco. She's an undocumented leader in Connecticut Students for a Dream. She goes to UConn, and she helped organize a protest at UConn following the results of the election. Jocelyn, thank you so much for talking with us today. And then I want to bring into the conversation a guest. Um, we mentioned uh, New Haven, uh, Connecticut. Uh, Angel Fernandez Chavero is one of the lay leaders of St. Rose of Lima Church in New Haven. He joins us from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Angel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we heard from these two young women. Um, I'm curious if their stories ring true with uh, the people that are w- within your congregation at St. Rose of Lima Church. Absolutely. Uh, I believe that there is very much still hope with all of us. Um, I was uh, reflecting on There Before the Grace of God Go I when I was listening to Jocelyn because uh, I came to this country when I was six months old. Uh, And I've had the opportunities that I've had because uh, I do have my documents. I am now a naturalized American citizen and went to one of the best universities of the world, Yale, and ended up staying here in New Haven uh, because I met my wife, who is a New Havener, and uh, I've just been able to have a great career because of all the opportunities that have been laid out before me. And I think that what's very sad, one of the first things that's very sad about this debate is it doesn't even have to exist because if, never mind the whole argument that I believe in passionately about social justice and about the dignity and respect that everyone deserves and how we in America should should orient ourselves that way. We lose so much if we don't take advantage of the talents that are coming to this country and of the talents that exist in this country. And so I, you know, it, it's something that we lose if we're going to have to have people still living in fear. The folks at my church, they are very determined to keep on going to keep on hoping to, frankly, still believing in the American dream. And what more could you ask of anyone who is an American? At the same time, um, I mentioned earlier, you know, Connecticut is a a very welcoming state uh, compared to other parts of the country. Um, So do you feel that your um, members and your community um, have uh, hope because they live here and people are more welcoming? I would say, of course, that Everybody is happy that uh, the governor and the mayor of New Haven, of course, have uh, expressed their willingness to uh, be supportive of the undocumented population. Having said that, I would caution everyone, of course, that, you know, uh, 
If ice is careful about what it does, it crosses its T's and dots its I's. It can do what it can do uh, legally. But still, I believe that we can defend ourselves. I believe that there are still civil rights that have to be observed. I believe that there are still due process laws, and our, our other guest can uh, speak to that far more knowledgeably than I can. But there are ways that we continue to fight this to make sure that the people who are here are treated well and with dignity and over time that, yeah, that we all can truly say that we're all Americans here and help in the revival of hope that's needed in this country. That's the thing that's become very, very clear to me is that many of the folks who voted for Trump aren't don't fit the stereotype of, of the racist. And we're taught certainly in my church, in my faith, and probably even uh, an easier example is to talk about Martin Luther King. Folks should remember, Martin Luther King was not this, let's all get, have a big, great kumbaya hug and, and, and forget all our differences. He was driven by a righteous anger, a righteous anger against oppression, against economic injustice. And what he would be telling us right now is that we need to actually have empathy for the other. And what we should remember is that many of the Americans who voted for Trump are feeling many of the same things that we as immigrants felt when we were in our home countries, a lack of hope, a lack of economic opportunity, seeing that government leadership is just cynical and in it only for that individual or their cronies. And so we left and came to a country with opportunity. Now, those folks who are here, who are Americans, who feel despair, where do they go? There's no other great country in the world to run to. We've got to work together to solve our problems together, to set aside our mutual despair and to rekindle hope about the American dream and to see each other as people who all have a dream, see the content of our character so we can move forward. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about immigration reform. What's it going to look like under the administration of President-elect Donald Trump? We're going to take your calls, your comments in just a, a few minutes. Also, we're going to hear from the Center for Immigration Studies and hear from an immigration attorney. Stay with us. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about some of Donald Trump's immigration plans now that he's president-elect. Joining me today is Angel Fernandez Chavero, one of the lay leaders of St. Rosalima Church in New Haven, Connecticut. He joins us from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. And before we welcome our other guests, I want to take uh, some calls. Arturo's calling from Hamden. Arturo, you're on the show. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, as I, um, I'm, I'm an immigrant myself. I'm a citizen, uh, and I've been voting at least for the last two election cycles. Uh, as I hear, uh, I think it's a, it's a great thing that you guys are doing a show on immigration. Uh, and as you go, um, it's a big issue. And as you go forward with this conversation and discussion, not just today, but over the next few months, I would encourage people to really do a lot of fact-checking. I sort of heard that we're taking at face value these two to three million uh, immigrants who, who, who are criminals. So right off the bat, we're labeling a big chunk of people as criminals. So um, I encourage a little bit fact-checking in that. And uh, I think you're going to get a lot of comments about the moral reasons uh, why, we, why, why, you know, in terms of uh, social justice, as the, uh, one of the speakers just mentioned earlier. I think a good piece of information to put out there as well would be 
uh, the economic contributions that immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, make to, to our economy at a municipal, state, and national level, because um, I believe, I don't have the number right in front of me now, but I believe it goes over $1 trillion, which would be uh, somewhere in the range of over 5% of our uh, national economy. So if folks really are interested in um, doing away with this part of the economy, uh, it, it really would feel like a pretty serious recession. Um, you know, some states have done uh, studies, uh, North Carolina, one of them, in terms of um, the contribution that how much uh, their welfare costs are for this group of uh, the immigrants. And they've realized that uh, even if they're, like, spending, uh, like, a few extra million dollars, uh, they, what they get back in terms of economic activity is incredibly far, far more, like, 10 times fold or beyond that. Um, so... Uh, that's my, my comment, just to encourage folks to really do a little fact-checking, uh, put this information out there, because um, social justice arguments are important, but I think some folks really pay more attention to what the economic uh, um, contribution and, uh, and you know the numbers are. So uh, I, I would encourage you all to do that. All right, Arturo, thank you for your call. And you know, someone who's familiar with that argument is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, a Washington, D.C.-based immigration think tank. Um, that group is in favor of tighter enforcement and lower levels of legal immigration. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I had mentioned that um, you, know, you work at the Center for Immigration Studies. I'm sure you heard our caller uh, talk about the benefits of immigration. Um, can you respond to what he's saying in terms of what it, helps, what it does for our economy? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, the consensus is pretty clear among economists, and this was articulated by the National Academies of Science in a big report, 1,000-page report they released just a few weeks ago, and that is that there is, in fact, a, when you look at all immigration together, not illegal immigration alone, but all immigration together, there's a small economic benefit. It's actually quite small, but it's real. The problem is that it comes from, the benefit comes from impoverishing working people, and, that, and their lost wages go to owners of capital and people who hire immigrants. So the net in other words, the plus and the minus, you put it together, there's, there is a small economic benefit, but it, it's the result of economic redistribution, a kind of reverse Robin Hood, taking from the poor and giving to the rich. Now, the immigrants themselves benefit, but uh, earlier immigrants, as well as the native-born who are competing with the immigrants who are coming in, are the ones who lose, and owners of capital, owners of corporations, and people you know, uh, well-off, affluent people who hire immigrant labor, they benefit. And even that small economic benefit is totally wiped out by the extra welfare costs. And that's not because immigrants are lazy or they're not working or anything like that. It's that they're poorly educated for the most part, relatively poorly paid people because they're in low-skilled jobs, and therefore... Um, all of the kind of programs we have to support poor, poor people, whether it's food stamps or Medicaid or what have you, they're able to take advantage of. Im illegal immigrants less so, although they still use them on behalf of their U.S.-born children. But legal immigrants are much more costly to taxpayers. 
and your caller had said, well, you know, there's a cost there, but it, you know, it yields uh, returns. Well, what he seems to be saying is that welfare is cost-free, that it pays for itself. And, you know, if that were true, then why are we educating our own people? I mean, why not just have lots of poorly educated workers of our own? I mean, it's, it's silly. You can't have a modern society where you import lots of poor people, however hardworking they are, however good they might be. They're good and bad just like anybody else. But you cannot have a situation like that that doesn't result in huge, huge costs to taxpayers. It's, just, it's not because the immigrants are bad. It's because we are importing 19th century style uh, immigrant flow into a 21st century post-industrial economy. Now, Mark, what about the impact of uh, these immigrants who are coming in, whether undocumented or legally? What about the impact of generations to come, their families? Well, it's, that's actually an interesting question, because what we found is that even the earlier immigration flow, the sort of Ellis Island flow that people think about, it took several generations for less educated immigrants from 100 years ago to catch up to the rest of society. And that same catching up effect is taking place now. There's no question. The children of immigrants do better than the immigrants themselves. The problem is that the original immigrants today are starting so far, so much farther behind the rest of society that their kids, again, on average, there's always exceptions, but when you put it all together, their kids even don't catch up. And the research on even the grandchildren of this latest, the last 50 years' worth of immigration, the, suggests that even the grandchildren aren't catching up with the rest of society. So this is a real problem as far as uh, income inequality and the gap between rich and poor. And immigration is really fueling and not, not creating it, but making it much worse than it would be otherwise. I want to bring into the conversation Glenn Formica. He's a practicing immigration attorney in New Haven. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So what's your response to the Center for Immigration Studies, that this is really um, hurting uh, the United States? You know, I, I'm an immigration lawyer, um, so I'm sort of, or I am on the front lines. I see the clients as they come in. I, I don't see them in aggregate, um, and I don't see them through studies. Um, I see them as individuals. Uh, I can think of almost... No, I can't think of any clients who come here and immediately go on welfare benefits. Quite frankly, they don't qualify. And as far as people who get their green card and then go on immigrate, you know, seek public benefits, uh, with a few exceptions, if you come here and you get a green card, you have to have a financial sponsor. And that financial sponsor is a, typically a U.S.-born citizen who is going to pay back the public benefits you use. So... And it's called a financial affidavit, and we fill them out on all of our applications. So, you know, I understand Mark is um, an academic, uh, a very um, well-educated academic, and he's looking at this stuff from, I would think, uh, a higher level than I am. But I don't see that. And as far as clients uh, that I do have, I know a very few who work for big corporations. Most of them have their own companies, and they employ other people. Uh, because very often they start with me as an as a immigration client and they become a business client. They become a litigation client. You know, oftentimes when U.S.-born um, uh, customers sometimes will not pay them or there's some act of discrimination, financial discrimination. We're not seeking a civil rights remedy. We'll go up. We'll fight back. 
So I don't see that. Um, and I also know there are plenty of other studies out there that would um, contradict uh, Mark's statement. The other, the other point that I'd like to make is that my clients, by and large, uh, after they've been here uh, you know, a few years, do speak English. So they don't change our cultural identity. And I think there's studies out there that say currently, um, as of 2013, 79% of all Americans speak English or speak only English. And then when you get into the other 21%, it becomes a mishmash and it's partial English. You know, they may not be fully literate uh, in English. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Rick's on from Southington. Rick, you're on the show. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I, I want to make the strong point that I did not vote for Trump, and I vigorously oppose his hateful language. But I do expect our immigration laws to be respected. I, I voted for Hillary, actually. Um, but um, I would like to know from um, the immigration advocates specifically how what their ultimate goal differs from open borders. And I think the American people clearly do not want that. But specifically, how is their goal different, in effect, from having open borders and secondly, do they acknowledge the right of the American people through the democratic process to pass and enforce laws um, that regulate or specify uh, immigration policy? All right, Rick, thank you for your question. I'll let uh, Glenn respond first, and then we'll go to Mark. Well, I would, you know, as an advocate, um, I, I am not for open borders, I should say that up front. Um, you know, historically, American immigration hovers around um, 10 percent, you know, plus or minus. I think 1970, Mark, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, was a low point in U.S. immigration. Um, what we need, though, is we need the ability for employers and new industries to, you know, conveniently, and I emphasize conveniently, bring in foreign-born workers for their expertise and their skill. We need an immigration system that allows, you know, the likes of Google to hire uh, engineers, the best engineers, wherever they are, uh, to come in. And, you know, one thing that Mark and I may agree on is, you know, everybody thinks of immigration as a zero-sub game. In other words, you're going to come here, you're going to take over my country, you're going to change my culture and change my way of life. Well, you know something? That's not what I do as an immigration advocate. I try to get people into the country legally. And to do that, you have to go through a very long, arduous process, something that would make an IRS audit look like, you know, a Sunday in the park. Um, you have to wait a long time, and you have to spend a significant amount of money. And what we need, what we need, and what I hope will make America great again, um, being an optimist for Donald Trump, is that he will reform that element of our immigration system that allows for legal immigration. Um, and the flow of immigration coming in and out. Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, uh, he's joining us uh, on the phone, a Washington, D.C.-based immigration think tank. You know, Mark, we wanted to have you on the show to get your reaction. You've been a longtime voice for immigration reform. Uh, what do you think it's going to look like realistically under President-elect Trump? Well, I mean, they've laid out some of the things they're going to do initially, um, and a lot of those things are... are things that basically undoing things Obama did on his own without any legislative sanction. So, you know, you'll see, as he, as he had said on 60 Minutes, 
they're going to be prioritizing, looking at deporting the um, at least two million, almost certainly more um, you know, convicted uh, non-citizen, convicted criminals who are non-citizens who have who have not been deported. There's the ICE itself, the Immigration Service, estimated a couple of years ago there were 1.9 million um, people who were convicted criminals who were deportable who were still here. And then you add on top of that almost a million people who have been ordered deported. They actually have gotten their final piece of paper and just ignored it and ran away. Uh, it's 900-plus thousand now. So those are people that he's going to prioritize. And the Obama administration said they were doing the same thing, except that since 2013, the deportation even of criminals has declined by almost half. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's remarkable, the collapse of immigration enforcement. So some of it is going to be just undoing the uh, harm that's been done to the uh, integrity of the system over the past eight years. And then going forward, he's talked about changing the legal immigration system itself. Um, as your other guest, uh, you know, talked about what, and we don't, that's sort of in general terms, but what I would expect when it gets to that, and that's something Congress will have to debate and pass, is you're going to see big reductions in family-based immigration. Because right now, a large majority of immigration is just based on who you know, not what you know. Just relatives. And I don't mean husbands, wives, and little kids, which there's a strong case for. I mean adult children, brothers and sisters. Those categories are probably going to disappear. And there might, in fact, be some changes or increases in the skilled immigration side of it. But, you know, that's something that's going to be down the road. That's, uh, that's not going to be done in the first 100 days. That's going to be something that's going to happen, you know, later next year or even the year after. Well, let's talk about the process. So, you know, I have heard that depending on what immigration court where you are located, there, there are, um, they are overburdened. So what's it going to take to have uh, President-elect Trump's administration to deport these two well, to three million? That's a, yeah, that's a different, I mean, that's, just to be clear, immigration court is for deportable people. It's nothing mm-hmm. to do with legal immigration. But as far your question, there's a, you know, it's a long backlog of uh, immigration court cases of people who are deportable. The problem, of course, there is that due process in immigration matters is whatever Congress says it is. There is no constitutional due process right, because it's not a criminal matter. It's just a civil matter, whether you're going to be deported or not. And um, this administration has taken every opportunity it can to overburden the immigration courts by adding more and more people into the pipeline instead of using the tools that Congress has given it to keep people out of the immigration court docket and deport them more quickly. So my point, just a quick point, is that this problem of a backlog in the immigration courts, it is actually a creation of the Obama administration's own policy. I'm going to have the immigration attorney respond. Yeah, You know, Mark, um, I look forward. I hope someday we get a chance to meet face-to-face. And, you know, I'm speaking to you as, uh, as an advocate, and I'm hoping because I'm anticipating that you're going to have the ear of our next president you know, we can talk about immigration court and we can blame President Obama. I mean, frankly, and I think you know this is true. I mean, if we're not talking politics, Obama has deported a lot of people. I have physically been in the courtroom as Obama has deported a lot of people. And I would also tell you that the immigration courts, there are regional differences in terms of burdens and the way they're handled. 
But I will tell you, by and large, in my firsthand experience, most of the immigration judges do the best they can. They look at the law and they try to make, you know, where there's discretion, sound discretionary decisions. And that works down to the ICE officers. So President Obama, you know, we can criticize him because of these executive actions that get all the attention. But behind those executive actions, he has made a highway. He has paved a highway to the border for all the bad people to get on a bus and be sent out of the country. And he has gone very hard and heavy on them. Now, I hope that the next four years isn't about deporting three million people or it's about saying to U.S. citizens, and your comment on family immigration kind of, you know, hits a nerve with me because, you know, for you to come into the United States based on family, by and large, you have to have a U.S. citizen um, petitioning for you. So then that U.S. citizen has every constitutional right of every other U.S. citizen. And to say that we're going to burden your ability to marry who you love and raise your family in your country, that you're going to have to somehow leave the country if you want to marry somebody else and live abroad, that's a tough sell. But I think the the constructive things that I – and I don't think, quite honestly, your side of the debate or, frankly, my side of the debate are really that far apart. I think that if the discussion is how do we fix the system, how do we make the system work for immigration lawyers to, you know, prepare good applications and get good people into the country, then I think the next four years, Donald Trump, he's going to be the immigration president and not the immigration president that, you know, with a scowl on his face, sends children and refugees scurrying out of the country. I, I think he will be remembered, I hope he will be remembered as the president who, after 15 years of no immigration and really none, uh, manages to fix this system. And he has the ability to do that. And you, frankly, have the ability to advise him on that. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm going to let Mark Krikorian respond. Just after the break, we're also going to find out uh, under President-elect Trump's plan, he has also mentioned cutting federal funding to sanctuary cities, sanctuary cities like New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, Angel Fernandez Chavero is holding uh, with us uh, in the studio down at New Haven. We want to ask him what he thinks about that. And if you're on the hold and you want to ask a question or comment, uh, we'll get to you as well. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A lot of attention on President-elect Donald Trump's promise to deport two to three million undocumented immigrants. Today, we're talking about what immigration reform will really look like under his administration. Uh, in studio with me is Glenn Formica. He's an immigration attorney in New Haven. And then joining us by phone is Mark Krikorian, executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. It's a Washington, D.C.-based immigration think tank. I wanted to ask you quickly, Mark, because uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, beyond just deporting undocumented immigrants, um, President-elect Trump has also mentioned uh, cutting funding, federal funding to sanctuary cities. You know, what's your take on that? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's almost guaranteed to happen. I mean, a sanctuary city is one that decides, that says that the local government can pick and choose which immigration laws they're going to allow the immigration authorities to uh, enforce. It's absurd. It's it's nullification uh, in a similar thing that you saw, uh, frankly, in the South in the 19th century. And it's not going to stand. And the first thing they're going to do is start cutting off law enforcement funding for cities and counties and states that obstruct federal authorities. And then there's other things they can do. I mean, they can step it up. And so it's going to be interesting over the next year 
to see who blinks first. And I don't think the feds are going to blink, honestly. I mean, this is going to be very difficult for New Haven or any or, or L.A. or any other jurisdiction to keep up its um, obstruction of the immigration authorities when they arrest somebody to say, no, we're not going to hold them for you. We're just going to let this drunk driver go, even though he's um, demonstrably an illegal alien. That's not going to last through the end of next year, I don't think. You call it obstruction. I know um, people here who support uh, the policies in New Haven and other sanctuary cities, so-called sanctuary cities, they talk about the importance of um, ensuring public safety. I want to bring back in the conversation on Hal Fernandez Chavero. Uh, You live in New Haven. Uh, What's your take on what Mark is saying about this happening under President-elect Trump. But what fascinates me with what Mr. Krikorian is saying is how he uses certain words. So demonstrably an illegal alien. What does that mean? Thank God I've never uh, gone through a DUI. But my name is Angel Gustavo Fernandez Chavero. What happens when a cop stops me for DUI? How does he know that I'm demonstrably an illegal alien? Or what if my name was Juanisa Sadurian, or Garabeda Sadurian, or Raul Rodriguez, and I get stopped for DUI? Now, those last two names, I did pick deli- those other two names, I did pick deliberately because uh, Mr. Krikorian has uh, made it clear that he's proud of his own Armenian heritage. This issue about immigration is not just about, it's just not a proxy, supposedly. For Latinos, and yet in my view it is, and yet there are many, many other immigrants, legal and otherwise, from many other ethnic groups. So who are we going to pick on? Who are you going to start asking, may I see your papers, please? Let's go back to 1939 then. And I mean, I'm not trying to uh, dodge the question of what does New Haven do. I hope New Haven exercises every legal option for one simple reason, because it's best for New Haven to make sure that its community is safe. And the way you make sure a community is safe is to make sure the community can trust its police force. And if it has to hide from the very agency that is supposed to protect them, then they're not safe, and when you increase the lack of safety for one group of people, you increase it for the entire community because it begets chaos. I here because there's two... Um, well, I wasn't able to pipe in when you were, yeah. asked, when you were talking before, so... There, there are two um, mistakes. The first is ICE only requests the local police to hold on to someone. After that is not been, true. After they've been booked, their fingerprints have been scanned, and the fingerprints go to both the FBI and now to Homeland Security. And then when something pops up and they find that that person came in on a visa seven years ago and lied about their intentions and never left, then they say, well, this is a guy we want to hold on to. It's not, hey, you know, you look Hispanic, show me your green card. Let's, That's let's not hear, what ICE does. I want to just... Let's hear I just, immigration. I just want to jump in, Angel, and, and, and Mark, too. I mean, look, remember, immigration law is a federal law, and sanctuary cities are no different than any other cities. I mean, I agree. The, the federal government enforces the immigration law. And when we're talking about sanctuary cities, Mark, it's a little, well, to I won't misnomer, say mis- I've hated that term. I've hated that term. Yeah. Well, let's, but that is the term. So, Mark, what I would tell you is be clear. What we're talking about is that the city 
is not going to go out and enforce federal immigration law, which it should not. And the city is not going to go ask people whether or not they're here legally or not. And, Mark, I don't think you want them to. Yeah, and ICE doesn't want them to. That's not what a sanctuary city means. A sanctuary city means that when the police, in the normal course of their business, arrest someone for whatever it is they arrest them for and book them and scan their fingerprints and send them to the FBI and DHS, a sanctuary city says when ICE says, hey, please hold on to this person, he re-entered after being deported, that makes him a felon, we want to prosecute him for that. A sanctuary city is a city that says, sorry, we're letting him go, we are not cooperating. Yeah, but Mark... That is what... New Haven does. That's what yeah. Los Angeles and New Mark, York and Chicago. And I understand the they're going to keep doing that. And the city still will hold uh, serious criminals. I yeah, mean, I can tell you from immediate deny. experience. They're taking into their own hands to decide which parts of immigration law they'll cooperate with and which they'll defy. Yeah, they but, don't get to do that. Mark, there, we have bond in the United States, right? You can't just hold on to somebody indefinitely. Right, exactly. And what happened under that, safe... Congress has established 48-hour rule that local jurisdictions are permitted yeah, but, to hold them until ICE picks them up. Mark, right. I, I fought under safe communities, yeah. and I can tell you ki- right. people were being held four to five days. I want to give on yeah. hell the last word because you are a community leader in New Haven, Connecticut. What happens now? 30 seconds. What happens now is that we just keep on fighting against this for the sake of the nation. As that earlier caller caller said, there is absolutely an economic argument. This is a foolish thing to go through because what we do is we're actually sacrificing the economic future of this country as well as what its moral foundations are all about. This is a country that was built on a dream. And we should continue to do that. And I'd like for all of us to work together with everyone who's afraid, who feels that they've lost hope, whether they're a native-born American who's been here for generations and, or and a new immigrant. On hell, we've run out of time. We're going to have to have together. another conversation. Thank you so much to our guests. Yeah, continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org, slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is Where We Live.